In the podcast, Nice White Parents, reporter Hannah Jaffe Walt, you may know her from This American Life, started looking into this one school in her neighborhood after her kids became school age in New York City. Hannah examines this public middle school, traditionally filled with black and brown students, after a number of white families arrive. And then, not satisfied she fully understood what she was seeing, she went all the way back to the founding of the school in the 1960s, and then up to the present day again. Eventually, Hannah realized she could put a name to what was getting in the way of making the school better all these years. White parents, nice white parents, is a fascinating listen that's deeply relevant today. It's made by Serial Productions, a New York Times company, same people who made the hit podcast Serial and S-Town. All episodes are now available wherever you do get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another special edition of 2020 Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. We are proud partners with the Sign Institute at American University in Washington. This is the week after uh, both, this is the week that the Republican convention ended. We've now had both conventions heading into the fall. We have a special guest to talk about that. Uh, and we also want to talk about this potentially devastating storm, Laura, which ended up not quite as bad, but may just be a harbinger of things to come. I want to thank everyone again who subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is why you subscribe so today's episode shows up in your inbox, even though you didn't expect it. Hey, James, our guest on the most recent podcast today is the guest we had on our first podcast, the incomparable Charles Cook, the founder of the Cook Political Report, which is the Bible for anyone who cares about American politics and elections, and a member of the Louisiana Political Hall of Fame. Uh, He's talking to us from his modest summer outpost in Maine, but he is the pride and joy of Shreveport. And Charlie, I gather Shreveport largely escaped uh, uh, this terrible storm. Yeah, Shreveport's inland enough that it usually just gets a lot of rain. Uh, And and in fact, uh, uh, Katrina went east, and so it didn't feel Katrina at all. But James, what was the name of the other hurricane that came right after Katrina? Rita. Rita. Rita actually did more damage. Uh, That was actually one of the few times when a a hurricane actually hurt uh, my hometown, which, you know, in the northwest corner uh, of the state and really more part of Texas than, than Louisiana, as James would say. But, well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that you guys are giving me a second chance since I was <laughs> so bad the first time and didn't kill we your series. <laughs> we, we peaked with you, but now we're going to try to peak again. Charlie, the yeah. speeches, the infomercials, Fox versus MSC, NBC food fight all over. Now we're going into the main event. How does this presidential race stand heading into September and October? You know, to me, four or five months ago, this was a competitive race that uh, Joe Biden was consistently, you know, four, five, six points ahead uh, and had been ahead, you know, ever since he got in in April of, of last year. But that the Trump, President Trump was still in the sort of the outer reaches of, of striking distance. But that uh, but it was an up he'll fight for the president. I, I think now it right now it's not a competitive race. Something would have to change for this to be a competitive race because it's looking basically nine, 10, 
uh, 9, 10, 11 points uh, in, in the, the, you know, the live, uh, live telephone interview polls, uh, maybe a, a point or two less in, in most robo and, and, and online polling. Um, I don't think this is competitive right now. And what, I think basically what happened was, was two things. Number one, I don't think you could have the greatest crisis facing our country in three quarters of a century and screw it up this close to an election and have a reasonable expectation of, of winning. And then mm -hmm. the second is that the strongest argument the president had was the economy. And, you know, I think going into a recession, normally you would expect a, a, a deep recession would, would just kill off any incumbent's chances of, of getting reelected. Uh, no, but I don't think he's facing a headwind at all because of the economy, but he lost the little tailwind that he had. So between uh, uh, basically 60% of America thinking that he mishandled this enormous crisis, uh, and losing the, the, the best argument he had, um, I don't think this is competitive right now. Charlie, I, I think I agree with you. I've gotten three emails this morning, though, from Democrats saying, boy, I'm now more worried. And I thought, well, was it the Trump speech? It wasn't so much that, all the notes. They, but it's, it's Wisconsin. It's Kenosha. It's the violence. Now, these may just be bedwetters who remember 2016. You know, can you see this thing, if it flares up, you know, even worse than it is now, by that I mean riots, disturbances, peaceful protests that turn into violence, causing real problems for the Democrats? I don't. I mean, maybe I'm out of it. I don't know. Uh, I, You're never I, out of it, Charles. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see it. You know, though, I think that one problem in, 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 in our world is that so many people are so glued to cable news, uh, and whether they're on the Fox side or, or you know, or on the CNN, MSNBC side, uh, but that that to me, very normal normal people don't watch any of those. That's not how they get. That's not how they get news. And you know, I I think. The, I think the best, uh, you know, but at the same time, they're not reading the Washington Post, the New York Times, uh, their Wall Street Journal, The Economist. Uh, they're not watching the PBS NewsHour um, for the most part, uh, uh, with all due respect to, 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 to your bride. Uh, you know, this more of an elite <laughs> intelligentsia type of argument. But to me, just... You know, whether it's uh, CBS Evening News or NBC Nightly or ABC World News Tonight, that's what 30 million people a week watch. And I kind of want to see, I want the information that elites get from more elite types of media. But I also want to see what the what the biggest chunk of people are seeing and that's that's the in the in the in the the 30 minute broadcast news every evening and um it'll be interesting to see how much that is compared to the coronavirus but i don't think um i i don't think this is going to affect things a lot but you know hey we've all been wrong no i, I well you're 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 rarely wrong i'll stick with your track record final bedwetter question and again i <laughs> i agree with you but the bedwetters say oh man but how about the electoral college uh, it was your colleague, Dave Wasserman, has predicted that Biden could win by as many as five points. 
and still lose the Electoral College. That seems a bit of a reach to me. But as you look at those states, are they falling in line, too, with a, a, a sizable advantage? Yeah, I mean, I use I use two to three points with the differential was two point one points uh, 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 for for that was Hillary Clinton's lead. I don't. Um, um, I mean, right now, what you've got is 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 that Joe Biden is ahead by five points or more in every single one of the 20 states that Hillary Clinton carried plus D.C., and he's five points ahead in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Florida, and that gets you that gets you to what three hundred two or something like that. I mean, yeah. And, and the, the the national lead now is basically double what whether you take the different you know the electoral college thing or this BS thing about shy Trump voters. Add those together. And it's probably, I think it's probably five points at that point, but, and, but we've got a lead that's double that. Uh, and I don't think the president got a bump out of last night or out of this week. Um, you know, we'll, we'll find out in a few days. But So, so Charlie, I was on uh, Brian Williams last night with Mike Murphy. And a point we were making is that since I've been, you've been involved in, since the late 70s, and I've been before that, I have been in politics since then too. In every poll that's ever conducted, you ask a right or wrong track number. Mm-hmm. And for good reason. That's a basically that's checking your blood pressure, your, your, your sugar level, or whatever. And we have a incumbent whose number very seldom plus or minus forty two, one at forty two. Sometimes it's forty three, sometimes it's forty one, but it's there. Yeah, and I, I I just think it's extremely difficult for an incumbent in an 80% wrong track country that's yeah. polling at 42 to do a whole lot better. I'm shy Trump voters or, or anything else. He's in a, t- a really tough spot when 80% of the country doesn't like where it's going. Yeah, I, no, I think you're exactly right. And and actually, uh, uh, some interesting numbers that uh, in the last 10 presidential elections, in five of them, uh, five, the, the voters voted to keep the party in the White House to keep them there. And five, they basically evicted whichever party had the White House. And in the five that uh, where the incumbent party was able to hold on to the presidency, the average right direction was 42 and wrong track was 49, 42, 49. But in the five that uh, where they, the presidency flipped, the average wrong track was 70. The average right direction was 24. And as, you're, as you said, right now, the Embassy Wall Street Journal poll, it's 19 and 72. So, right. you know, like the old Lost in Space TV show with the robot saying, danger, Will Robinson, danger, danger. Uh, that's a danger signal. Having the lowest average job approval of any elected president seeking re-election, um, yeah, that that's a danger. I mean, all the are da- danger signals. So, I don't. I just have a hard time seeing even even with voting problems, even with the electoral college, even uh, you know, as best I could tell, there the people people have uh, you know, Alan Greenspan used to talk about irrational exuberance. I I think right now there's an irrational degree of caution 
with people still having PTSD from, from 2016, when as best I could tell, there are only three things that are consistent between this election and 2016. And one is, uh, they're both US presidential elections. The second is Donald Trump's Republican nominee. And third, the year both begins in two. Other than that, there's no similar, there's nothing in common that incumbent presidents, when they're up, it's a referendum on them. It's not a choice election. Uh, and, and if it's a referendum, um, you know, I think we know who, how the president will fare. You know, as I've watched the convention, I've got a lot of thoughts on it, but I would bet you anything that the Republican National Convention of 2020 used the word Republican far less than any previous Republican convention. <laughs> this was very little about the Republican Party and very much about Donald Trump. And the, the greatest questions, I'm just going to ask you, your, your expertise is election prognostication of which you're the best in the world. But let's speculate if, if we're right and Trump goes to defeat and not a particularly close defeat. Well, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, you talk to Republicans, you know, 20 of them a day. What, what, what do you think is going to become a Republican Party? Do you have a, just a guess, an idea? Yeah. You know, for for a while, that's the question I'd been asking, particularly my Republican pollster friends. Is uh, I would phrase it five years after Donald Trump leaves Washington, and regardless of whether the calendar starts in January of twenty one or January of twenty five, what is the Republican Party going to look like? And uh, you know, our friend Tom Davis, who used to chair the National Republican Congressional yeah. Committee, he's got a great line. He said the Republican Party has gone from the from country club to just country, and you know, a little harsh, but but not entirely wrong. That it's it's completely they've repositioned themselves. And is this going to continue or is this going to flip? And the only theory that I, I I found I came up with that this would be a year ago is it depends that that would be dependent upon who Democrats nominated in 2020, that you've got these upscale, college-educated, suburban, more women than men that have been moving away from the Republican Party over into independent and starting to move into the Democratic Party, while simultaneously had these non-college whites, but particularly those that are, are evangelical or conservative Catholics move in the opposite direction, that um, that if, if Democrats nominated a Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, that big group of college-educated suburban women might well do a U-turn and start moving back either into independent or or back into back towards the Republican side. But that if Democrats nominated someone that just didn't repel them, somebody that 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 would 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 welcome those people in open arms, that uh, uh, Democrats can would you know, that, that Republicans would continue to be the party of Trump, because I don't think he's going to go away quickly or quietly. Um, you know, I think he's still, even if, if assuming he loses, I, I think he's still going to plague that party and make it difficult for for Republicans to try to fix their party, do, you know, do what that RNC autopsy recommended they do in 2013. 
about expander base, reach out to young people, soften, soften some things. Um, uh, what they need to do is pretty obvious, but they're, I think they, they've, got a, they've got a real challenge in being able to do it. Every convention I have been to, Charlie, the party has honored, celebrated, either from video or a speech, some of their iconic leaders, particularly if they have passed away, whether it was Reagan or Ike or Truman or Ted Kennedy uh, in 2012. Four people were not mentioned at this convention. George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, John McCain, and Mitt Romney. This is the Trump party, not the Republican party. Well, I mean, you're the godfather of the NBC Wall Street Journal poll. Um, <laughs> you know, they've begun asking the question, you know, of Republicans, do you consider yourself uh, a, a supporter of the Republican party or a party of, of Donald Trump? And it, what is about, a, I think it's about an eight point margin for Trump rather than just yeah. identifying with their party. Um, we've never seen anything like that before. James, I'm sorry, I interrupted you. I, I, that's why I think these never Trumpers are, are valuable. And I do think that, that it's not an overwhelming number, but there are some people who just kind of view themselves as Republicans that if they get any kind of permission from other Republicans to vote for Biden, we could pick up, you know, if you pick up 5% more Republicans, shit, that's a lot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a whole lot. And I think you can do a little better than that. So, I have, like, let me ask you this. Two races that I've predicted that will overperform. And how big, if they win, to some extent, will be determined by how big the Biden margin is. But two places I think are overperformed for Democrats are Alaska Senate and Missouri governor. Wow. Uh, I think that both of those, I'm just looking at them. And, you know, if, it's a, if Biden wins by five, probably be pretty tough at that point. Anytime he goes anything above that, I, I'm not sure we're gonna, not going to win Missouri just flat out, no matter what happens nationally. But is there any kind of race that you see, maybe it's the Republican side or, or something where you see something that kind of position to do better than, than expected? Because that always happens. Even if it's a huge wave year, some people do better than other people. The ones you pick, they're interesting because now I'm always skittish about Alaska because, you know, everybody, everybody in this country believes that their state is unique. It's just different from all the others. And in the case of Alaska, it's really true. And <laughs> I think those of us in the lower 48 understand Alaska less than we understand, you know, uh, there, there are countries on the other side of the globe that we understand better. But having said that, the, the two the two races you point to strike me as ones that that are because you don't have strong dominating personalities on either side that what you're talking about is basically a generic vote that people are going to you know they're voting blue or they're voting red and that uh to the extent that uh it it it, it differs from where things were four years ago um that that would tell you um tell you where things are going. I know it, in, it basically nationwide, there was about a six point swing between 2016 and 2018, where you just look at a house, look at, look at what happened 16 and move the, move it over to the left six clicks. And you got what happened in, in 2018. And I don't see any evidence that, uh, that, that it's going to be any, any different. So, you know, it's sort of what, what's the, 
What's the generic like compared to 2016? And, you know, the, 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 back the, the previous midterm election, 2014, we had the lowest midterm election turnout since 1942, the lowest since 42. And then we had 2016, surprise, but the turnout was about 60% of the voting eligible. Uh, so it was in line with the three previous ones. And then in 2018, we had the largest midterm election turnout since 1914. 1914. And, and that was before me, Charlie. Yeah. Well, the thing is, it reminds me of that scene in uh, the, the last scene, I think it was in, in, in Tora, 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 where Admiral Yamamoto is up on the bridge of the aircraft carrier and the Japanese planes are coming back from the Pearl Harbor raid. And, and you know, they're all, all the, you know, they're doing whatever the equivalent at the time in the place of the high fives, excited that it was a successful mission. And the Yamamoto character says, I feel all we have done is awakened a sleeping giant and filled him with terrible resolve. The 2016 election filled the Democratic side with a resolve that did not exist. That, that in 2016, there was an intensity behind Donald Trump. And as bright and qualified as Secretary Clinton was, there was a hell of a lot of ambivalence in the Democratic side. But... I think election night 2016 changed that. And 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 the Democratic Party's hair is still on fire uh, almost four years later. Okay, uh, look, I could not agree with you more. And I've been pounding the table on this. Remember, remember, it's all about November. And far <laughs> that I see it in February of this year when panic struck in, Literally panic struck in that we might nominate Bernie Sanders to have a split party. And once South Carolina happened, it, it just, everything fell into place. People like, you know, suburban housewives and Loudon and Fairfax. Hell, I'm going with Joe Biden. I don't care. I mean, everything just changed in that most consequential political event in a primary maybe I've ever seen was the South Carolina primary of 2020. Because once James Clyburn dropped the hammer, and people saw that, then you had like Livingston County, Michigan changing. And you had all kinds of people just saying, hey, that's who we're going with. And I, I thought it was powerful. And I completely agree that across the spectrum of the Democratic Party, that winning is not what counts the most. It's literally almost everything. Yeah. You know, we've talked about this before, that you had 40% of the Democratic Party that just wanted fundamental change. I mean, they wanted, whether it was Bernie or Elizabeth Warren, they, that's what they wanted. But 60%, all they wanted was someone to win. And But they were so, so traumatized by 2016 that I think first they started looking for the perfect candidate. And there aren't any perfect candidates, but the perfect became the enemy of the good. And so we found ourselves, uh, you know, the 60 percent that just wanted to win were split up between Biden and Klobuchar and Buttigieg and Bloomberg. And and it wasn't until, as you said, they started looking into the abyss that they said, well, screw it. Let's go with Biden. And they all knew Biden. They all liked him. That sort of thing. They, they had had questions about whether he could win. But at this point, it's like, OK, the nonsense is all over. 
uh, we've got to get behind him. And that's exactly that's that's what they had what happened. And as it turned out, it's it's worked out, uh, I think, as well as we expected, because if Biden has, you know, his the, the biggest downside that Joe Biden has is going off script and saying things that getting really excited and just saying things that he didn't particularly mean or didn't come out right and spending a lot of time in his basement and 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 communicating with people in very very much controlled circumstances that's uh, uh that's been as about as optimal as you could possibly get so i don't think democrats could possibly feel have a situation any better than it is and frankly i don't think you could have i don't think either party could have a more than a 10 point lead which i think is where this race is right now because uh, we're we're just in an era of high floors and low ceilings for par- for parties because of a hyper partisanship so um i i just think there's this irrational level of caution among pundits and irrational pessimism on the democratic side that the data just doesn't support. Charlie, I agree. I would say I think in a normal year against a normal opponent or incumbent, Joe Biden would probably not be a very good candidate. He may be the perfect candidate this year. You're not going to sell him as crazy Joe, radical Joe. Uh, and I just think, you know, for the basement and everything, that that I think you're under, the point you're making about underlying conditions is so right. One more topic before we let you get back to those main lobsters, because James and I have talked about this. Maybe it's just that a, a, a wave, a rising tide lifts all boats. One thing I'm told where the Republicans are starting to pour a lot more money into are those state legislative races, right. which in 2010, they brilliantly, and I think somewhat diabolically, won, and it made a difference for a decade. What, do you have any sense of whether the Democrats, they got some good groups, the Democratic Redistricting Commission with Kelly Ward and the DLCC, mm-hmm. but are they going to be able to take control of some of those legislatures? Well, first, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, I like to say that it, 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 there's never a good time to have a bad election, but sometimes there are really bad times to have a bad election. And to have a, a ba- election go badly for your party in a year ending in zero, Right. With redistricting happening the next year, that's like the most horrible thing that could possibly happen. And that's exactly what what Democrats had back in 2010. Um, I think the premier expert on state legislative elections in the country is Tim Story at the National Conference of State Legislatures. And he points out that there is a very, very, very strong relationship between how a president is doing and, and state legislative gains or losses for that party. Right. And there's pretty strong linkage. And, uh, and the, the, in the 2018 midterm election, I mean, Republicans had a tough, it was a tough year in terms of state legislative and gubernatorial races, but it wasn't, as, it wasn't proportionally as bad as they had had in the U.S. House. And, uh, but this... Um, uh, these legislative races are incredibly important. There are a whole bunch. There are a bunch of chambers that are. I had a column on this a week or two ago that are that are right on the edge, including the Texas House. So right. this 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 election up and down the ballot is just so incredibly incredibly important. But yeah, there's there's uh, I think there are twenty something chambers that are teetering the edge. I mean, eighty percent of all the state legislative seats in the country are on the ballot this year. 
Um, wow. So having a good year or having a bad year, um, you know, as I said, a year in and a zero is a really, it's a good time to have a good election and a bad time to have a bad election. I want to return to your Shreveport roots. I think that the Mayor Shreveport, who's a Democratic nominee for the United States Senate, has the most compelling resume story of any United States Senate candidate under 40 in the, the history of the United States. And uh, I would point out that he, I think he grew up in Holly Grove, which is a, you know, a really not so good neighborhood. This neighborhood was the first African-American to be commanded a brigade at West Point, served three tours of duty, combat zones, won the Bronze Star, was president of his class at Harvard Law School, and came back and beat an incumbent when he was 36 years old by two to one to win the mayor's report. I, I would defy anybody to put a resume like that in a young, in a young Senate candidate anywhere in U.S. history. <laughs> Well, and, and um, I had uh, I met him a little over a year ago and have talked with him on the phone and uh, so impressive. But you left out his three most important qualifications that he attended Arthur Circle Elementary School, Uri Drive Junior High School and Captain Shreve High School, all <laughs> the three schools that I went to. So he's the second most famous graduate of Captain Shreve High School. Yeah, well, we are both in the circle of honor, uh, the, the, the Hall of Fame for our high school. And the reason the circle is, is the, the, the high school is, it's a relatively new high school. It's a, it's a round high school. So the circle of honor. So uh, that's what we share. Um, and, and the thing is that, that uh, you know, he, uh, Adrian is running against Bill Cassidy, uh, who is, is not an incumbent who has uh, uh, big, big, big negatives. But, you know, he doesn't have huge positives either. And, um, you know, it's up. Look, it's a federal race in Louisiana. It's by definition, it's uphill for Democrats. But it's a really interesting race. And James is right. This guy's resume uh, is, is unbelievable. You know, I, and I have this, we have to get behind people like this. And, you know, I, Trump is only beating Biden in Louisiana by 50 to 43. If you look across, I've seen polling from Kansas, I've seen polling from Alabama, South Carolina. There's not, I don't think in any of those states, I've seen Trump above 52. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm serious. It, it, yeah. it, 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 Alaska? I mean, he's, he's ahead, but he's not, I, I, I don't know if, it's, I, I guess I hadn't seen polling from Oklahoma, so I'd, I'd have to get... Yeah, I'd, I'd want to see Idaho and Wyoming, but yeah, that kind of stuff. But I can tell you, in Alabama, yeah. you know, Louisiana, South Carolina, Kansas, Alaska, and I mean, I've seen some consistent and pretty high quality polling. And yes, he's going to win these states, but it's not, not going to win. He's not going to go much north of fifty-five even in Alabama. I don't think they're going to be some. More- there are going to be some Republican incumbents that we think are, are ought or will probably win that won't. And there are going to be some people that we would have expected to win easily are going to get the life scared out of them. Um, Cause that's what happens in these big, big, big wave elections. And, you know, both of you remember vividly 1980. I mean, I remember uh, the first 
uh, Birch Bay lost, uh, incumbent Birch Bay lost in Indiana at 6.30 in the evening, the moment the polls closed. And Democrats lost a Senate seat every half an hour for the next six hours, 12 net loss. See, that when these things get nationalized, and that usually happens more in midterms than in presidential years, but when 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 you when that big wave comes, man, it it's it, it's 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 a it's it's like it's totally unnatural what happens and you just see big old things happen and uh, that's what i sense this year is going to be like he's 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 looking at you senator squiggly biscuit also known as lindsey graham uh so uh, watch out uh charlie cook i hope you'll come back sometime before november 3 because you not only bring us good luck but you but you elevate us so well, I want to, th- and I'm sure Lucy wants to get out and get some of those lobsters that are left right now. Well, thank you. It's always an honor. I'll do it whenever you guys ask. So uh, hey, tell me about Becky now. Where's Becky now? Oh, our daughter. Um, for our, um, when our daughter was probably a year, two years old, uh, we were together and James taught my daughter the potty game where he had her sit in his lap and had her stick her arm out. And then he pulled her arm down like he was flushing a toilet and would drop her down between, uh, on the floor and she would just squeal in delight. Well, uh, she is now the mother of a, uh, it'll be two years old on Monday uh, and they live in Santa Monica and she is a genetic counselor with her master's in genetic counseling. And uh, uh, anyway, we're, we're real, 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 real proud of Becky as we are with uh with uh, all of our kids. And actually our son, Jeff, is with ABC News and he's down in the hurricane zone, uh, going through his second hurricane and was doing a forest fire, California wildfires uh, last week. Uh, and and then David's a, an aspiring football coach. Well, tell, tell Jeff to call my wife, Judy, because that's how she made her name in, in television, covering hurricanes. Really? It's a, it, it's a great stepping stone. And, and Charlie, be sure you listen to the other part of the podcast. Where yeah. We had a guy from, you know, in North Carolina is the foremost hurricane surge modeler in the world, and we would oh, enjoy wow. a lot of that. And I think you would enjoy it. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing again. Thank you so much. Hey. You, as I say, you elevate us. We will be back on with you sometime before November three, and uh, take it easy that last uh, week of hardship duty up in Maine. <laughs> Take care, guys. Bye. Be safe. Hurricane Laura, while not as deadly as feared, uh, inflicted severe damage, mainly in your home state of Louisiana, also East Texas and Arkansas. One of America's foremost experts on storms is Rick Lutek, director of the University of North Carolina Institute of Marine Sciences. He has modeled these coastal systems at risk and is the leading expert on storm surges. James, this is a, a, a subject so dear to your heart and mine. Why don't you start with the professor? First of all, thank you, uh, Dr. Lutick. Uh, I guess my first question is, Is we seem to be pretty definitive that Laura would push a 20-foot storm surge. At least according to press reports, it was 10 or 11 feet. What, what, if that is correct, what? Why? Why was they off by a factor of half? Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be on your podcast, uh, and I'm happy to talk to you about this. 
Um, the best modeling that, that I have seen and, and been involved with had, uh, had storm surge of about 17 feet as the maximum. So, so in that 15 to 20 foot range, I mean, in, in, when you get that high, uh, I, I think that that's reasonable. Uh, the, the data, the observations that were out there that, that you, we can kind of dial up and look at uh, right after the event, most of the gauges broke. And so it's, it's kind of hard to get a, a really accurate um, um, record of what happened. But I happened to find one this morning, actually, that I didn't know about that was an Army Corps of Engineers gauge that right at uh, Grand Chenier had 17 feet on its gauge. And so uh, and that's very close to what the models were predicting. Um, the other areas, uh, mouth of the Calcasieu ship channel, for example, was down around 10 feet. Um, but that's simply because of exactly the location of the storm and where it pushed the water. But over Grand Chenier, uh, and, and fortunately that area is uh, largely a wildlife refuge. So there's not a lot of people and, and, and infrastructure there to be damaged. But I think, I, I think all evidence is that the, that the surge in that area did reach the levels in which it was anticipated. And, uh, and, and it's just, fortunately, it didn't happen in an area that was populated, that there were people there to see it. Yeah, I think that, that also there was a wobble to the east right before landfall, which probably helped a lot with the storm surge coming up to Calcasieu. It moved it. It moved it, it moved it a little bit to the east, so it moved it to where it, 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 it wasn't quite so uh, in the face of, 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 of the population centers. Right. So my friends, of course, our culture really follows storms. And when we watch the media and, you know, they have somebody on the seawall with Fort Lauderdale or wherever and talking about the wind and the rain. And I think they're missing the, the, the press does not do nearly an adequate story to say that by far the biggest danger of these storms are the storm surge and the amount of immediate and long-term damage that they cause. The, do you, I mean, you study this. The, Absolutely. Do you think the surges are undercovered, the wind and the rain are overcovered? Well, historically, we've talked about the category of the storm, which is all about the meteorology. And, and that's just, you know, that's just been the way we've sort of evolved over the last decades. Um, Katrina was one of the first storms that I really remember vividly, where people stopped and, and started to say, wait a minute, it's, this wasn't, a category five storm, but it was catastrophic. And so it was really a very clear indication that the storm surge, the water, was what does the most damage, kills the most people, and is hardest to recover from. All three of those, it's, it's the water. And, uh, and then we start looking back in history, and, and, and that's definitely been the case uh, over the last century. And so um, within, the, within the community that works on this, there's been a big effort to, to, to push it out uh, and to try to get that message more broadly uh, communicated. Um, yet the venues, the, the, the media that cover this are, is the weather media. It's the meteorological media. And, and so I think they just tend to fall back a little bit into the comfort zone of talking about the storm itself. Uh, and and less about uh, uh, less about the storm surge. And, and again, we've never developed a scale, a convenient yardstick to talk about storm surge the way we have about 
you know, the categories for, for the storm itself. Right. So before I turn over to Al, I have one more question. What is the kind of one or two or three scenarios that keep people like you up at night? I mean, what, what, what would be the what region and what would be sort of a catastrophic thing that would well, be worse than we've been woke up? I, I mean, you know, could, uh, an, a, a significant event, a major hurricane uh, hitting, you know, right at one of our primary population centers along the, the Gulf or east east coast of the U.S. are what, to me, are, are, are you know, we've had the two really big storms, the really devastating storms, just from a power of it all, have been uh, Michael and now Laura in the last couple of years. Harvey was a devastating storm, but it was rainfall. But just the power of these storms, Laura and, and Michael, and, and, and Mexico Beach in Florida was absolutely flattened by Michael. But imagine what that would be like if that was a Miami or Mobile or or New Orleans or Houston Galveston. Um, and so so to take a storm and the maximum punch of a storm and put it right over a population center is what keeps me awake, in, in addition to one coming to Moorhead City, North Carolina, where I live. Yeah, Lord, I don't want anybody to get it, but please not me. I've, had enough. <laughs> I've, I've, so I've studied these when they're going somewhere else, and I've studied these when they're coming at me. So I look out my window right. and wonder whether the computer's telling me what I'm going to see out my window. And and uh, that's that's a totally different experience. Correct. Doctor, nobody looks at, at those computers and those models more carefully than you. Uh, this one was really bad. There were people who died. There's lots of damage done. It wasn't as catastrophic as I gather, as people feared it was going to be. Uh, you know, it's easy to say in Washington, not so much if you're in Lake Charles. But looking ahead, do you have any sense over the next six, seven weeks whether this is going to be a particularly worse than usual uh, hurricane storm season uh, and where it's most likely to hit? Um, you, you know, I have to I have to say, I do think the folks down at the National Hurricane Center probably look at this stuff even closer than I do. So, I, I mean, we, we do have a, a good group down there that, that works very, very hard at this. So I think that's important to, to recognize. Um, this season, we're, we're, it's not done. Uh, I mean, there are a half a dozen at least, I would say. I mean, you know, this is just a, a you know, gambler's chance, but I, the statistics are there, the evidence is there. We're gonna have at least a half a dozen to maybe a dozen more storms. I mean, the peak of the season tends to be uh, second week in September. So, um, mm -hmm. so again, if you roll the dice that many times, um, it's very likely that we're gonna have at least a couple more that, that significantly impact the coast of, of the United States, be it the Gulf Coast or the Southeast Coast. Um, Florida, Louisiana, Texas, North Carolina are the primary strike points for these storms. So uh, again, it's not a it's not a real statistical challenge here to guess that one of these areas is very likely to have another major event, uh, if not two or three more, uh, before the season's over. Well, my God, I mean that that's terrible under any circumstances, but in the middle of what will be a continuing pandemic where you have to evacuate people, 
this may be the worst hurricane crisis potentially we've ever had. Well, it certainly set itself up that it could be. Uh, um, again, I, 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 I am hard pressed to to anticipate something of the of the level of what we had to live through with Katrina uh, in Greater New right. Orleans, and and then if you go back in time to the Great Galveston storm uh, early in the 20th century, um, I mean those were so devastating. Um, but but this but that the pandemic makes the evacuation process extremely difficult, and and it makes the managing this at a local level that are trying to open doors and provide for people uh, at the local level. It gives them a, a huge concern because um, imagine uh, COVID nineteen with folks in the Superdome, the convention center. Uh, you know, or, or even smaller shelters, how those two play against each other. And, and yes, it could be a real, a real problem. So what are places you live in North Carolina? What kind of preparations can or, and are being made for if two or three storms do hit mid-September uh, or to late September? Well, I, I mean, I just know anecdotally what I hear around here, but I, I do know that the there's more effort to try to maybe seek out and, and pre, um, pre-claim or, or pre-reserve hotel rooms and, and things like that, as opposed to, again, school gymnasiums as shelters. Uh, you know, I think that there is, there has been proactive efforts by at least our local communities to look for low dense, lower density solutions in the case that evacuations are needed. Um, but, as a general rule, we've been unprepared even in a non-emergency situation for the pandemic. So, um, so I'm sure there will be surprises if there ends up being truly a a a, a collision between pandemic-based decisions versus evacuation-based decisions. Uh, it, it'll be interesting. I mean, there was a massive evacuation um, from Galveston and and from you know, areas in Texas. And so uh, it, it will be interesting to learn a little bit more about how, to what extent the pandemic changed or, or affected how that was done or, or not. I think it was Florence, but there was a, a pretty wet, uh, wet storm that hit at least in North Carolina. And there was considerable about flooding, as I recall, that there were manure pens from pig farms that, you know, got into to the water system. Is there been any long-term damage? You know, it's sort of, so we come and we we read about it, we watch it on TV, the storm surge recedes, and then we forget about it. Is, is anything changed in eastern North Carolina as a result of that excessive flooding? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, um, and the damage to the environment is oftentimes unseen and 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 largely forgotten about. Um, you know, it, it tends to be short term, but there is, but the environment is amazingly resilient. Um, and so, um, you know, for the most part, I think it it has come back reasonably well. Um, you know, I think what you really asked the question about is how is it how have people been able to come back from this? 
And, and yes. you know, again, Katrina had a massive migration out of greater New Orleans and New Orleans is a different place today than it was before then. Um, and I just don't know the answer to that from a human standpoint, how, how Florence may have changed the, the demographics or, or the, the, the population here in North Carolina. But to be honest, I, I'm working with social sciences uh, colleagues at the University of North Carolina to try to understand that better and to, to begin to try to create at least a baseline that we can follow in the future so we have better data on that. Good. I mean, I guess there are plenty, of, I think, of a lot of worst case scenarios, but one of the worst that strikes me is Miami, because there's only one way out of Miami. Exactly. And, uh, you know, if you're in New Orleans, you can, you can go to Houston or you can go to, to, to Pensacola, I guess, or somewhere, or you can go, if you're in Miami, you can go north and that's about it. Well, and if you have an Irma-like yeah. storm, if you have a storm that comes up the spine of, of Florida, then then you know you got to get and you got to start in Miami and then keep going and going and going until you get to North Carolina or something. Right. So it, there are a lot of people going while you're going. There's going to be a lot of going on the road. Well, that's it. And 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 the Miami people then hit the you know the Daytona Beach people that then hit the Jacksonville people and all of that, and so um, so. So a shelter in place becomes almost an essential part of dealing with things, uh, storms like this, the further out, the further south really you get. Uh, and Miami, massive evacuations out of Miami may or may not be realistic for a storm that's coming largely up the spine. Now, if, if it's an Andrew storm that just kind of comes perpendicular to the coast and straight across, then you can kind of get out of the way of that. And by the way, when that happens, more often than not, we get it. Right. They come across the floor financially. Exactly. And then, boom, it you know, it gets there and it heads toward the, toward the northern Gulf. You, you got see, Andrew and north. Katrina did that too. Absolutely. Yep. I think Betsy did a long time ago also. Yep. And then you also have to worry at least it's not as much as the Atlantic, but sometimes these hurricanes form in the, the Caribbean and just come right straight up. I eat Camille. Yeah. Which, you know, is always something that if you live in the Northern Gulf, you're always watching what's going on in yep. the Caribbean. And, and they can Southern form Gulf. right in the Gulf, too. I mean, Michael, right. Michael formed in the Gulf. And came right. straight at you. Thank you, sir. I mean, you're, you know, anybody wants, please look up the CV, which is just freaking awesome. And John Barry, who I think knows a little something about this, just thinks the world of you and that you're one of the best academics in, in the country that deals with these issues. So from my vantage point, uh, thank you very much. It's a real privilege to have you on our podcast. Well, I would I would just second that. And you've been great today. Let me just ask you a final question, which we cannot avoid in these times, um, uh, Professor. And that is, is there any danger if we do have a couple bad storms? Uh, is there any danger of, of of politicizing the reaction and not reacting as we should? Uh, one, one certainly goes to bed at night hoping that that would not be the case. Um, uh, these are very, very polarized times. And so uh, to just uh, ignore that possibility and not plan for it would be uh, would be imprudent. So, I hope that doesn't be it isn't the case, but I think we ought to at least be aware and be on our guard and 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 all 
you know, the media is critical in, in terms of trying to keep us on track. And so um, the more we can make sure that doesn't happen and get a message out publicly, I think the better chance we have perhaps to make sure it doesn't happen. Well, okay, we all can agree on that and all hope that there are no more storms uh, this season uh, anywhere and uh, probably a little bit extra uh, hope that they're not going to be in New Orleans or in Moorhead City. But uh, we have learned a lot uh, from you, Rick Lutek, uh, the director of the University of North Carolina Institute of Marine Sciences and one of the foremost experts in the country, probably the world on storm surges. Uh, and let's just hope we're all safe for the next six weeks. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. And do say hi to John Barry for me. I definitely will. And thank you again. Let's spend two minutes talking about that, that I thought, extraordinary Trump convention. It wasn't a Republican convention. Uh, it, it was some of the most bizarre moments I have ever seen. And I've seen a lot of bizarre moments. But, you know, the the son uh, trying to uh, reprise the Gipper speech. Let's win it for Uncle Robert. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, uh, you know, showing what it's like to have a nervous breakdown on national television. Uh, uh, it, it just was, it was a bizarre group of people, uh, James. It's been bizarre since the first started. Look, his speech went 71 minutes. Do you know how long Bill Clinton's speech to the 1988 Democratic Convention was? Yeah, I do, because you told me. <laughs> yeah, 33 minutes. Yeah. I mean... It, 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 and it's all this entire convention was just to make daddy feel good. All right. He's depressed. As of 11.52 yesterday a.m., they were on television in one media market, and that was Washington, D.C. They had no television booked anywhere in the rest of the country except Washington, D.C. And... Everything is trying, trying desperately to calm him down the best they can. And they had to do the whole convention to do just that, to make it by him and get him in a better mood. Because he knows he's behind and he knows if he loses, he's going to the penitentiary. And he's not, and I wouldn't be in a good mood either if I thought there was a good chance I was going to end up in a penitentiary, which if he loses is exactly where he's going to end up. And he is scared. And Rudy is scared because Rudy going to follow him in there. It really, really was bizarre. And there were so many things that you could say. But what I love was these, you know, Ivanka and others talking about how this is the hardest working man alive. I mean, you know, he watches Fox News all morning, doesn't show up in the office till noon, plays golf five times more than Barack Obama. I may be exaggerating, but not much. Uh, it, it just is, uh, this is not the the presidency is not heavy lifting uh, for this guy. Clearly, their, their hope was that somehow or another people would walk away from this convention, which probably had hit. But I don't know what they were last night, but leading into this were historically low numbers. Also, they thought more people were going to show up on, on the lawn at the White House than did because they were moving chairs right before the event. Right. So, but, but they were trying anybody watch to say, oh, he's a lot more human than you think. And he's going to protect you from crime. I mean, that's what they right. tried to get out of it, how successful right. they are. We'll see. Right. Well, you know, his his um, kids were there and his son-in-law was there. 
You know who wasn't there? I didn't see his sister, did you? Or I didn't see his well, niece, I, I did, did you? Um, I, I don't think she was uh, invited, nor did I see his niece. His sister's a judge. You wouldn't, you, why wouldn't he invite his sister, James? I'm, I'm it shocked. seems that his sister doesn't think very much of him. I can't imagine why. Maybe she knows him. You know, hey, look, this is a, a nightmare. I, I, I hope we're, I hope Charlie and I are, and you are right, and the nightmare in shortly, but until it ends, no one's going to rest very, very 56 calm. days. Hey, James, this has been a great show. Uh, I thought the professor was terrific. Uh, and Charlie Cook just makes me, I, he just makes me feel good every time I talk to him. He's so smart, oh, yeah, insightful, right. and wonderful. So, and I, these are the kind of shows I like where, where we talk about something obvious. Well, actually, hurricane season is obvious, but to have a, an obvious guest. And I'm just, I'm very critical of the way these films get covered, you know. It's, I know you are. I know the you way are. to do it. But, uh, you know, I said people gonna need to understand this better because it's going to be a fact of life this year. But yeah, fact of life is you be safe out there uh, in the Shenandoah for at least uh, until next week. And I want to thank I want to thank everybody for listening to 2020 Politics War Room. Follow the show on Twitter at Politics War Room. Email us politicswarroom at gmail.com. That's politicswarroom at gmail.com. Thanks for subscribing. Please rate the show. Be generous. A five-star review, we hope. We'll be back next week as we count down to November 3. I can promise you we're going to have a terrific guest. Don't know who yet, but we'll be terrific. Uh, So please stay safe and healthy out there. Bye until next week.